1: You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzenmeier. My guest for episode 128 is Roger Joseph Manning Jr., who rose to fame in the early 90s as half of the songwriting team behind the band Jellyfish, along with lead singer-slash-drummer Andy Sturmer. You're right now hearing The King is Half Undressed from their first album, Belly Button, 1990. Roger played keyboards, and the band also featured one of my previous guests, Jason Faulkner, on guitar the lineup changed for Jellyfish's second album to include Eric Dover on guitar and Tim Smith on bass and I mention them because the first song we're going to discuss today Lighthouse Spaceship was co-written by Roger with those two fellows as the Licorice Quartet from their 2020 EP Threesome Volume 1 now Jellyfish split up in 1993 right after that second album and Roger's done many different projects including Imperial Drag with Eric Dover the Moog Cookbook TV Eyes with Jason Faulkner he's also been in Beck's Backing Band for many albums and tours and he released two solo albums in 2006 and 2008 we're going to discuss the turnstile at heaven's gate from the second of those catnip dynamite and then we'll discuss another song from one of his one-off projects it's called time to time the project was called malibu the album was robo sapiens it was released in 2007 although the recording was made a few years earlier we'll conclude by listening to operator from his latest solo release an ep called glamping 2018 written with evan Weisblatt. For more information, you can look to thelicoricequartet.com or rogerarranging.com. And for more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or if you want to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little bit of The King is Half Undressed by Jellyfish from Belly Button 1990, just to orient folks. But we're going to get to the new stuff very quickly. Lighthouse Spaceship by the Licorice Quartet from Threesome Volume 1. 2020, which is a partial Jellyfish reunion. Actually, nobody from Bellybutton besides you, but three quarters of the band from the second lineup. Do you want to say a little bit about where you're at at this point with this album, with this song?
2: Like all the songs on this EP, it was a colossal experiment. We had a solid verse and a bridge section we believed in, but there was no chorus. There was no long-winded outro. I mean, so we just conceptualized and would chip away at it. You know, they're all giant jigsaw puzzles and you just spend time fantasizing about what it could be. And we never intended for this to kind of turn into a prog pop epic, but that's kind of what it became. And then we just said, well, there's no reason to fight it. This is what the song wants to be. Let's allow it to do so. And let the fans figure out if they're <laughs> if they're going to enjoy it or not. We like that it sits on the album with other songs that are very different from that and have their own personality. So we like that that's kind of a borderline pompous extravaganza, and we're having fun with that in the albums that we grew up with that influenced that track.
1: I think this took me a couple listens to get a handle on because it's so overwhelming. I mean, just that giant sweet meaning the band sweet harmony that comes right at the beginning with, you know, the first time vocals come in. I'd be interested to hear the demo on this, to hear kind of what it sounds like. in it's before you started <laughs> punching it and <laughs> punching it up until it became this monstrosity. But as it is, after three listens, you know, I love this. Uh, it's so damn thick. Thank you you said a little about the order of putting this together. So you had just the melodic character of the verses or the actual lyrics and everything in the verse first?
2: So the verse and part of the bridge and that opening lick, the that was all kind of a little sketch that I had. And whenever I come up with an idea, uh, lyrics are the last thing to show up. So I just sing gibberish and what have you. So there was no visual concept for the song as far as Lighthouse Spaceship or any of that. And as we continued to write sections for it, like we all wrote the chorus together and flushed out different stuff, we said, well, we better have a lyric. <laughs> and Eric, he's just faster typically than Tim and I uh, with lyrics. So we encouraged him to get lost in his head and see what he could come up with. And in a relatively short time, meaning less than two weeks, he had the bulk of that lyric, which we were all initially very excited about. Tim and I have lyric contributions on the record as well. It just takes both of us a much longer time. Again, after working with each other for so long, you start learning really quickly what they're quick at, what they're less quick at, hence a collaboration, not having to take a democratic vote every time you want to get an idea done. So I said, Eric, I bet if you had a stab at this, you could do pretty well at it, and he didn't disappoint. Once we had that in mind, arranging the song, this kind of loose sci-fi element is what kind of took over lyrically. And then you try to capture that instrumentally as well.
1: Yeah, I can see how those things would feed back on each other. When you're writing it in the first place, what mood did you envision? Probably not (laughs) sci-fi. Did you have something in mind with this catchy little verse?
2: The idea always struck me as, for lack of a better term, glitter era Brits. It just seemed like it was in the spirit of the spider's from Mars era of British, glitter, pop, T-Rex and the like, all, all the obvious candidates. But I knew having done this for a while, that by the time we were finished with it, our personalities is, are what would dominate. That may have been what inspired us, but we're not three Brits. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So some other version fantasy rock world is going to be created with our personalities. You aspire to the greats. That influenced you, and and I have no problem saying we've. You study your heroes long enough, you realize they're just human beings and frustrated musicians like yourself, and you just chip away at the jigsaw puzzle and make it as good as it can be.
1: I had wondered when I was prepping this if the latter way that the courses are delivered might have been the original idea in terms of it's more super tramp. I guess Eric takes over on the lead right on singing high, where it gets very mellow toward the latter part of the song. But you're saying that was actually very late, you'd already kind of established the big spiders from Mars thing. And then
2: everything prior to the outro was written and complete. Mm -hmm. And then we all agreed that the song arrived someplace and we didn't want it to just fly off the cliff. You know, we wanted the spaceship to take off again, if you will. And that was going to have to start from a intimate, quiet place and have it be a gradual, serene experience, almost like We're actually, I'm reading way too much into this, but the brokenhearted and the love lost in the proverbial world are are being saved by the benevolent alien visitors. And I'm just speaking in generalities. I mean, people can read into it whatever they want. I still don't know what was in Eric's head when he wrote it. I have my own imagery and interpretations. The choruses, those were all written by the three of us in a room together trying ideas out because we believed in the verse, and the verse was one feel. It was very solid, and we knew we wanted the chorus to change and be more sing-along, and what was that going to look like? So you just chip away at it. The hardest job you'll ever love kind of thing.
1: Let me pull out a couple sections. I'm thinking about 227, so when we're just getting into the bridge... That gets pretty epic in a very short period with those echoes in there. Is 90% of this in the studio and you know, in terms of what can we get away with, or was this more mapped out?
2: With the three of us having done this for so long, what we understand works for us is you basically create a foundation and an architecture, like the framing of the house, so that what you just played for me is that build for four bars or whatever that leads you into the first part of the bridge. So that first part of the bridge was actually conceived already prior by me, in my original sketch with the verse. It was like a add-on to the verse. I knew it was connected, but didn't know how. How did I know it was connected? It was just my preference. I mean, it seemed like a logical linear section to go. It's a constant dance between the logical left hemisphere wanting to create architectural structure, foundation, framing, and then the right hemisphere of the brain constantly going in there, allowing for spontaneity, allowing for all possibilities and openness. But for me, once I know I have a foundation, Sky's the limit with arrangement. So when we got to that build, we know the band would go da 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 and bridge, right? We're just doing a little Broadway show style intro into the bridge. We knew the bridge was high up, so Eric was probably gonna sing that and I was gonna harmonize with him. So we kind of both take the lead there. I had it in the verse. Eric essentially has it in the chorus, then we join in the bridge. So we're constantly aware of these type of choreography, uh, lyric-wise. But that harmony that you hear going in there, when we sit back and look at the song and go, all right, lead vocal is solid, chorus lead vocal is solid, and you go, well, the song's essentially done now. All right, what decorative things can we have fun with that further the sentiment of the tune? Is it epic, with psychedelia, whatever that may be? And again, we've had a lot of practice doing background vocals and we came up with the idea of doing this stacked chord. Certainly not an original idea. Bands have done it forever into the bridge part one. And you just, you just keep chipping away at it, but they're all experiments. So the challenge becomes you can imagine in your head what that stepping vocal is going to sound like into the bridge, but you don't know if it's going to sound any good, even if it sounds good in your mind until you go out and sing it. And that takes forever. So that's like a four note chord or something. If I'm not mistaken, multi-track that. You got to get it in tune. Everybody has to phrase together because if people's phrasing are slightly off, it sounds less special. It's too sloppy. Sometimes sloppy vocals are good. The Rolling Stones made a career out of it. But we knew for this, we wanted it to be have some precision and some athleticism. There's a pomposity to it, a flamboyance. And so that's the goal. You go out and sing it. And four hours later, everybody comes back in and goes, well, do we like it? <laughs> is it working? Are parts of it working? Have we not quite completed it? Does it need to be bigger? Do we need to add more notes? No, it's too big. Just make it two notes. And just all day long, you're just back and forth, just finessing, finessing, finessing.
1: It makes it sound like you're actually trying to sing some of the harmonies in the room at the same time. Was it just the normal, no, we're just doing Tim's part. We're just, just hit that one note in the middle and layering it and constructing it like that.
2: While we have confidence in our singing abilities. We do not have 10 years of singing around one microphone together like many of the 60s folk bands did. So Crosby, Stills, and Nash, even before they were Crosby, Stills, and Nash, had 10 years behind each of them in singing in folk trios, right? Graham Nash is in the Hollies and Stephen Stills is doing Buffalo Springfield. Crosby's in the Birds. They're used to singing with people a lot. And when you sing with other people a lot, you learn to tune to them. You learn to phrase to them. You learn when you're too loud, you back off from the mic. It's a whole other skill that's been a lost art for years. Sure. Very few people are raised these days to understand that craft. Then when they finally got together for Crosby Still as a Nash, they were, you know, they were young men still, but they were seasoned professionals. They'd been harmonizing since they were 15, 16 year old with other groups. So they could rally around a mic, just like the Beach Boys. They, They were raised doing it. You get around a microphone. And you know each other impeccably. And so you can really, all your consummate musicianship and training shows up. That's one way to sing backgrounds. Another way to sing backgrounds is to piecemeal them. So you can be extra specific about certain precision and stuff. These particular vocals on this album, I can't think of any that were done with the three of us around the mic. Because it wouldn't have served the end goal.
1: Sure. There's no shame in fixing the pitch and shifting things and lining it all up You know, at this point.
2: Yeah. Once you have the raw material, it becomes another instrument. It's the same way I would edit keyboards or I would edit a brass section or all the multiple guitar parts. It all becomes a collage. It all becomes a sculpture. And that's really, really fun for us.
1: Only at the cost of it taking 10 times as long as if you you were just able to...
2: It's an insane exercise in patience. (laughs) It's not for everyone and the really frustrating part, challenging part, as you can imagine, is all of it's experiments. And some of those experiments are going to blow your mind and sound great, and others are going to fail miserably. And you're going to have to go, okay, well, we just lost that day because that didn't work.
1: Let me pull out one more section. So going to the second half of the bridge. quite a lot for a transition. I mean, any comment about the choice of, did you at least have like, okay, this is how many measures is going to be here?
2: So that first instrumental chunk you played was always intended to be instrumental. That was another offshoot but related section I had that I connected to the verse. I always imagined in my mind a instrumental departure that would break up the monotony of the verse. So Imagine I had to fumble through guitar because I knew I wanted it, the bulk of it to be on guitar, and I had to sing to Eric and Tim what I was hearing. Thankfully, Eric and Tim are songwriters in their own right. They've done this for many, many years without my help, and they're able to imagine what I'm doing. So if I'm sitting there going na 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 with my mouth na 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 strum strum strum, they can tell that I'm like faking guitar with my mouth or faking, you know, you do synthesizer, right? You got to have a lot of trust and faith in the people you're working with to allow yourself to be completely vulnerable and act like a complete idiot in front of your friend. But that's initially how you're going to get ideas across to each other. Once they generally felt they had a concept of what I was sharing, then, you know, you take a vote. Hey, yeah, that sounds like it's worthwhile to pursue. And then, you know, we track the drums first. So we're describing to our brilliant drummer friend, Jeremy Stacy. this is going to be an instrumental section. You've got to imagine this swirly synthesizer and these big guitars going. Nah, nah, nah. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm trying to imagine that. But Jeremy's recorded hundreds and hundreds of albums this way. He gets it. Part of his job is to translate what the composers are conceptualizing and fantasizing about. So again, you take a lot of chances. It's a great exercise in, trust with your collaborators, then you finally reach that day where like, all right, let's put some big chunky guitars on that. Let's put that psychedelic synthesizer part playing the melody, whatever. You just keep flushing it out till it has the power and energy that you had all fantasized about in your consciousness.
1: And there seems, as is typical of your arrangements, very little repetition you know if you're going to have a second verse it's going to have something different with the texture there's going to be a let's put tremolo guitar under this let's have the drums do 16th notes let's do something to mix it up every single time
2: for us that's fun to do again to elaborate not as a rule but if it helps the evolution of the song ultimately our goal while we're ultimately writing what is sing-along pop ideally is to seduce the listener into an environment and hold them there for the duration of the song. So I never want their attention to drop. I never want anybody to be bored. I always want them to continually discover new and exciting things that hook their attention, even when they're listening to it for the 30th time, ideally because that's mostly what my heroes did for me growing up and it was so intoxicating and such a powerful drug for me that you fantasize and it builds up it's internal for yourself and then he's like oh you just want to share that with the listener as well it's almost like paying it forward but in an ideally a fresh a unique way a- on your own terms
1: so a great example of that is the second verse where it sounds like you come in is at a clavinet on the right side <laughs> Which is just this great Stevie Wonder sort of thing thrown into the space rock thing. It certainly works. It's not the, again, I kind of associated more with funk, with Stevie Wonder, with things like that. And so, you know, I've never heard that in a Queen song. Maybe I'm not thinking of one, but... Neither have I. (laughs) And then, of course, how long is the end going to be? That we're pretty much wrapped up. It's pretty under control. This could have gone much longer, almost six and a half minutes, but we're mostly wrapped up by four and a half or so. And then we got this everybody, everybody come to the lighthouse spaceship. Everybody, you know, this crazy chorus that it's great that you have the. I'll link folks to the lyric video of this because, like, there's so much going on at that point. I wouldn't really know (laughs) what's happening. There's there's just this weird, like, demon chanting. I don't know exactly what's going on there. Forever and forever, hallelujah. Like, that would have been. How far can uh-huh. we take this in, in, its, in what it's suggesting? Which I guess once you've entered this, we're going to have it be space rock. I'm just surprised that it stays as grounded as it is. Like you said, calling all the distressed and sorrowful people together, you know, you have to have some human pathos in there at that point, which in a completely goofy psychedelic song is not available.
2: I'd like to think that with past projects and Licorice Quartet is no exception, All sides of our personalities are revealed and shared. And that's what makes our artistic offerings multidimensional. Not one-dimensional, not predictable, not here's the licorice quartet box and they never leave it. Human beings are capable of such vast emotion and music is the audio way that that gets conveyed. And I love it when a song can play with more than one emotion at a time. Just the outro alone is this very kind of melancholy, longing, sentimental thing. And then, like you said, as it progresses and progresses and fades and the spaceship's taking off into the stratosphere, if you will, there's also this sinister component to it. There's even a potentially comedic component in that it it flirts with going completely overboard, but never quite. And I wish I could say that was just one of us Directing that. I mean, I don't wish that, but that's not, that would help if it was simple, if this all came from one person's mind. But this is what happens when, in this case, three like minded people join up because a lot of that vocal stuff towards the end came from the mind of Eric Dover. Now, for Tim and I, when we first heard it, we were as surprised as you. We were like, You want to do what now? And then it goes, Whoa, okay, I wasn't prepared for that. But it also was not far out. You know, I'd been in a band with Eric. I was like, Oh, I can see that he's putting a twist on it. Whether he knows it or not, this is just what his creative essence has driven him to do. He constructed a lot of those, as the song's fading, a lot of those super crazy stacks and of characters and creatures. It's almost like these Muppets pop up and start doing this choir. That came from him after a weekend of, he was trying a bunch of guitar ideas for the song at home at his home studio. And then we were all going to listen to them together. And he said, so here's the guitar parts we talked about. And then I tried some vocal stuff on the fade out and we're like, okay, whatever. We'll listen to that later. And then we heard it and we're like, well, what were you even think? I don't, we were just completely surprised and shocked. And then very shortly thereafter, Tim and I understood not only are we excited by where his personality has taken this at the very, very end, but this is exactly what it should do. And so how can we actually take more vocals, more instruments, and help him do that. Help the song be that. This twisted, almost like, am I scared or am I gratified? Am I actually being rescued by the aliens? And I'm happy about that, but I'm also in fear because they're freaking aliens, for crying out loud. And again, I'm reading way too much into that. We didn't have this conversation. It was almost like it was understood.
1: I'm going to stop for a few minutes to tell you about some sponsors I'm very grateful to Masterclass for continuing to support this podcast. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. And well, yes, it would definitely be worth it for you just to get the course by a legend like Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, or Itzhak Perlman, you're really going to want to do the all-access pass so you can dive into cooking, dog training, history, interior design, hostage negotiation, and of course over a dozen music classes and other things in the arts, whether on writing, filmmaking, or general creativity that'll help you to excel at what you do. This week I delved into The Art of Performance by Usher, which focuses on a lot of things in music that I don't usually pay a lot of attention to. And it was good for me to see him talk about how he manages his stage presence, building a brand, how he promotes himself, how he creates video for Instagram, even gives a review of one of his own performances. It is good stuff to know. And the whole thing is pretty darn short. Not a huge time commitment. Definitely worth it. If you've taken the plunge for a annual membership Highly recommend you go ahead, get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Hey, I'm guessing you are a music listener and or podcast listener. I've been doing a lot of these things during the pandemic, more so even than usual. And with my family stuck at home with me, it is imperative for every one of us to have a great pair of wireless earbuds so we can all be listening to our own things And before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. These start at half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound really amazing. Definitely in the same ballpark as the super expensive, over-the-ear, bulky noise cancellation pair that I bought for much more money, and I don't even know I have them in. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 Earbuds, are their best ones yet with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Perfect for conference calls. Perfect for binging podcasts. Stylish, discreet, no dangling wires. And this is made by musicians, co-founded by Ray J. And celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy et al. are obsessed with Raycons. So now is the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash N-E-M. And use the code NEM15 for 15% off. That's buyraycon.com slash NEM. Offer code NEM15 for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash NEM. All right, let's get back to it. Well, let's get a song out there that is just from the mind of you, but going similarly excessive. I just tend to be attracted to those songs. So The Turnstile at Heaven's Gate from Catnip Dynamite 2008. You want to say a little about this
2: before we hear it? This song, although it's guitar heavy, was written on a little synthesizer that sounds very small. But because it sounded small, it allowed my imagination to think big. I wrote that way back in 1994, 95, somewhere around there. And of course, it would not be another 10 years before I realized it. But I wanted to have all the bravado and energy of a rock band like The Who and a lot of this stuff. (laughs) I wanted to be more psychedelic, maybe more like the Who Sellout album or or that era of psych pop in my own way. And I didn't write the lyric until the song was almost finished in 2005. had no idea what it should be about. And then I had this idea of playing with reincarnation. I was reading a lot about it. I'd been raised in a monotheistic, traditional Western religious environment and while not practicing i was terribly fascinated with religions and spirituality from around the world at the time a lot of which have a reincarnation component so i started to play with that in the lyric I came up with something that i thought was fun and not serious and uh the verse is super angular i don't know where i got it from in other words i don't know what inspired me it's almost like frank zappa or something like if sparks was trying to play with frank zappa's music that verse was an experiment it was really weird and difficult And I finally pulled it off. I was able to string these weird chords together with this melody that I thought worked. It was a huge gamble, but I think that's what makes the pop that I love and that keeps engaging me more interesting is to take these chances. I I love continuing pushing the envelope, as my heroes have, within a sing-along three-and-a-half-minute song pop context.
0: special guest give it to me straight You'll never learn back down
1: Yeah, so I hear that beginning, that harpsichordish sound with that small... There's a melody over those eighth-note chords. I guess, first, is any of that programmed, or is all this played?
2: I mean, everything I do is played, and then if I need to use the computer to save a take that was otherwise good, I got 95% of it right, but that last 5%, I had a big accident. I might use the computer to help me nudge it into place. I always go for the performance first, because that's where all the personality and character and humanism is.
1: There's a little bit in that intro that now that you mentioned the who which <laughs> ding, ding, ding 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 uh
2: oh yeah there's a bunch
1: but they would use these crude synthesizers oh, sure. these sequencers to do these you know in who are you or whatever
2: it has that sort of feeling that's very much like that that's not actually what i had in mind during that part but i couldn't agree with you more that's not unlike a guitar song that has this kind of repetitive keyboard uh, electronic bed that maybe the verse gets sung over or something
1: Well, and then the melody that you're playing is, I couldn't get out of my mind. I can't smile without you. Like, you know, it's walking around a scale, but like,
2: that's actually. Uh, Right. Which is Barry Manilow. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which I'm sure is just a coincidence, you know, (laughs) but. uh Well, that's what your mind is hearing.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the thing that you're saying is Zappa-esque about the verse, it sounds like it's straight from a musical to me. I mean, this this is your life, a ba guest. Ba-bum! You know, even with the big guitar, ta-da, <laughs> like it's actually
2: going ta-da. Absolutely. I am not a big musical fan, but I guess being raised in the era that I was, it's it's seeped into my consciousness. Obviously, there's musicals I like, but trust me, it's like one one hundredth of my record collection.
1: I totally understand because I hear a lot of this like in Genesis songs, like early 80s, right. like Duke. They did a lot of that kind of stuff. And I'm sure they probably were like, oh, musicals, musicals suck. But it's the kind of thing that you don't consciously identify with, but that you heard a lot as a kid anyway, you know, so these gestures on TV, on whatever, that that's when you're trying to like do something Weird and different and theatrical, and I don't want to just imitate the Beatles exactly, then you just end up drawing on all this other stuff that is unacknowledged influences.
2: And in a lot of ways, it comes back to just song architecture too. So, for example, that verse is not grooving, it doesn't have a straight rhythm that you're then singing on top of. That doesn't really happen until the chorus. The chorus is where everything releases and it's open, the drums are just playing time and rocking through there, you have this soaring melody. So the verse is juxtaposed against that. So the verse and the pre-chorus, the whole goal there is to build this tension and to create this suspense and mystery and where's this taking me? And then it releases into the chorus. So it's things like that, which progressive rock does, musicals do, lots of regular rock is done, but it's not something that like punk's gonna do (laughs) unless you're the damned. (laughs) And they do that kind of stuff really well as as well. I mean, they're one of my favorites through all this stuff. Yeah, so a lot of it's conscious and trying to transport the listener in a way that is different than the song they just heard before, the Turnstile.
1: Yes, I had Rat Scabies on the show, and we talked about what's the history of the 20th century, something like, well, that was one of the songs, which is a, very theatrical in this same way. The producer, I forget what, who does it is, you know, was a guy who just does movie soundtracks now, in fact. Like, that was with a bunch of strings packed in. Let me play just a little getting into the chorus. So this is the end of the pre-chorus here. So you played everything on this. So you're even playing that drum part. How much punching in are you doing to do some of these drum parts? When I talked to Jason Faulkner, he just like seems so disciplined in training himself to so they he could play performance quality on all the instruments. Are you a dabbler with some of these? You were describing your guitar as somewhat fumbling. Uh,
2: I have way more proficiency on certain instruments than others. Mm-hmm. So if I'm tracking keyboards, for example, I'm getting it done a lot faster and a lot quicker and in more complete takes. If I'm tracking guitar, it's happening less fast, less complete takes. I might do a compilation of several guitar passes and do lots of punching in and et cetera, et cetera.
1: But what about the drums? Cause that seems like you either have to do the whole thing or it's kind of hard to punch because the cymbals get cut off weird. And
2: you're absolutely right. Uh, you have very few liberties with the drums. So
1: you just enter. I'm just going to woodshed with drums for at least, you know, the hour to work up to actually recording something like this.
2: Again, I know on keyboards, if I'm arranging a performance, I want to do a certain fill into this part. So I'll practice doing that, particularly if it has some difficulty in executing.
1: And then when we actually get to the chorus, I'm really surprised that all the lyrics came so late in this because there's something about, you know, you described it as just drums are playing very straight here. But when you put a round and round in a song... There's something about the way that it's arranged that actually gives you the sensation as if you're watching a video of something going around and around, which there's nothing actually in. You can't actually do that in music. You can't go backwards.
2: No, you can just allude to it. That's the fun arrangers have, right? sounds like you're versed in both the history of Genesis and say yes, if you will. So two premier coexisting progressive rock bands. I mean, they were two of the groups that wrote the book. They helped invent and create this art form. Both bands had guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, vocals. They had those five things, both bands. They couldn't sound more different than each other. Same instruments, same sonic sound palette available to each of those bands at that time in gear history and equipment evolution, recording techniques. It's all about the power of arrangement. What are you going to do with those instruments? When are they going to do whatever they're doing? When? And those bands arranged very different from each other. They were, again, this incredible concurrent talent pools that I've learned immense amount of rock arranging from. I'm endlessly fascinated by it. And above and beyond, I'm endlessly fascinated how arranging those instruments so skillfully can transport me and create moods. The running joke with Yes fans is that how did they find an artist in Roger Dean for all of their graphics that so perfectly capture visually what Yes's music sounds like? <laughs> it's like, how did that happen? There's lots and lots of reasons for that. But you can, if you close their eyes, a round and round, a swirlingness. There's composers have been doing this forever with symphonies and, and so forth. And there are skills and tools that are taught in academia for that. But at the same time, the ultimate joy is to then take all those schools of thought that precede you and what does it mean to you? How are you going to put your own stamp on it? Simply by combining two traditions, pulling out two tools from a toolbox, you're going to use them differently than your neighbor. And once you start cultivating this, every record you make, every song you play on, every jam you have with your friends, you're learning, you're in class. I'm still in awe that most of my favorite Genesis and Yes music, you take Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is probably my favorite Genesis album and Yes Relayer, which is my favorite Yes album, both of which came out in 1974, 75. All the band members, I don't think anybody in the band was over the age of 26. <laughs> what they're doing sounds like they've been doing it for 50 years. And I'm just like, all right, people, there's no excuse. <laughs> Highly inspirational. I mean, not to mention the work of Todd Rundgren. And I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, you know.
1: Yeah, geez, Relayer, I think, broke that band. I mean, maybe it was the <laughs> Tales from Topographic Oceans already, but like it sort of reached a pinnacle in terms of complexity and things, and it just had to go down
2: from there and Yeah, they had to shift gears, which they of course did by going for the one and tornado and all that stuff. But that's part of why I like Relayer, is because it's that philosophy so exploded out. But at the end of the day, I just like the melodies and the grooves. I like the hooks. I think there's incredible hooks. Gates of Delirium, for me, that's like doing a bag of acid and mushrooms without ingesting anything. But it's still grounded. It's not just completely abstract. It's completely structured. and They're telling a story. I mean, it's it's literally a soundtrack. It's a rock soundtrack. It's just not using a symphony.
1: Well, again, I wonder how much the, you know, when you're talking about why does Roger Dean's art seem to match their style? Well, it's because they're connected by the lyrics. Like, I was very surprised when I, I was hearing enough yes that like, oh, they're doing something that's related to blues because it seems so English and Baroque and foreign to that and elaborated. But no, if you look at Roundabout, like that's kind of a sped up, not exactly blues, but it's something in the R&B tradition. And certainly that's kind of where they were coming out to. If you hear the very earliest recordings and things that it's at least in the same universe as the Rolling Stones, you know, as opposed to
2: there's a soul to it. I think that's what you're picking up. There's definitely a soul to it. There's an R&B influence, right, coming through these Anglos. And Steve Howe's guitar playing is loaded with blues influences. Sure. Every kid his age, when they were 14, was trying to be in some version of a Clapton British blues band. Some bands took that further... Like Humble Pie and Led Zeppelin and others deviated into a Prague arena. That's why that era for me is so exciting. It's the confluence of so much stuff. Jazz was exploding in the world in the late 50s and 60s. And these kids who would then go on to be 70s rock heroes, if you will, were hearing all of that as well. Bert Bacharach is on the radio. Super intricate harmony, super chromatic chord progression and very evolved. Schooled, sophisticated pop. It's an incredible, incredible time in popular music.
1: Well, and you're making me think of a thing. I know you're an XTC fan. Maybe you've heard this story of Andy Partridge telling Dave Gregory when he started playing with them, stop earning. In other words, the Chuck Berry sort of riff. Like, you're not allowed to do that in this band, that that was an attempt to, there may be relations back to blues. But we're not gonna do a Pink Floyd solo here. We're not gonna. It's gotta
2: be the British brittle, whatever the alternative is. That's one of the reasons I like XTC and bands of their school of that time in the mid to late seventies, who were basically giving the finger to the Genesises and Yeses and Zeppelins, and and taking the whole flying in the face of the whole British blues movement. So this was so great is all these reaction. Everything's reactionary, and it's constantly XTC is not forgetting the influence that early Floyd, Sid Barrett Floyd, has on them, but they're going to turn it on its head. You're never going to be able to shake that out of them. But as conceptual artists, that's why Andy Parker is saying that to David Gregory. David Gregory, but they're both consummate musicians. And because they are, let's conceptualize and philosophize first. What do we really want to convey? Okay, we want to convey this. Well, guess what? That doesn't include obvious blues vocabulary. In fact, the whole point is to navigate around the piles and piles and volumes and years and years ad nauseum of blues cliché, tear it down, take the cover off the pothole. And if you walk over that, you're going to fall to your death. And that's where you get these incredible albums like Black Sea, which has its roots in 60s sing-along Beatly psych pop. But with so much of the cliché removed, that this other very fresh way of expressing lyricism and groove and funk and soul gets shared with an audience. And that's what caught the ear of that young, new wave punk generation. It had nothing to do with Bad Company and the Zeppelin and the Hendrix that had reigned for so long. It was a very creative, artistic fuck you of dismantling that generation.
1: Let's point out a couple more places in this song where I think you're doing something comparable. This is where uh sounds like King Crimson comes in for a couple of measures. <laughs> So we're right back to the nice musical thing, except with a military snare, but we had to go through that devil-worshipping section.
2: (laughs) Figure out a musical way to get us out of the, basically to shock us out of the dreaminess and floatiness of the chorus, and shock us back into the agitated, what ground am I trying to stand on as a listener with the verse?
1: Yes, and then there are two other places, so the, the bridge where you, let's just add synth bass, let's go reggae a little bit here. There's no reason to like switch up the bass sound right there. We're on a different landscape. We've moved into a different car of the train, something like that.
2: What was conscious for the bridge is not only a detour in the time; it goes to halftime. But I figured, well, this bridge is going to be its own thing, and so when it came time to play the bass, I said, "Well, in making it stand out and differentiate it from the rest of the song, what can I do with the bass sound? Or I can put it through some pedals. I can do whatever. Well, how about if it's electronic? And it's not." The bass at all. And so, again, just having fun with the arrangement. There's so many experiments you can do. At the end of the day, it was about, is the melody of the bridge holding my ear as a listener to get me from its entrance to its exit and then back into the song? In other words, I'm not trying to do any of this stuff for the sake of doing it. Check out all the crazy instruments I use. Check out all the uh, detours I take. It's more in the musical tradition, again. It's the script of the play, right? The libretto is saying we have to go over here now because there's a new character who's now acting and taking over. It's, it's very filmic. It's cinematic. You're scoring in a way, but it's musical tradition.
1: And then the most startling transition, let me just actually start at the beginning of the transition to the, the marching band section here. A hundred
0: thousand, but a million okay. Now here's a big surprise, Jim. Looks
2: like coaching season's underdog number 52766 and although this guy's coming off of one hell of a losing streak you couldn't
1: ask for a more <laughs> which i'll admit that this kind of lost me a little bit but i, I admire the sheer
2: balls of it did you actually get horn players to come in just to play 10 measures here they're all keyboards there is trumpet on this record but i spent so much time getting keyboards to sound like a oh it's marching band coming through your little TV speaker that I was like, well, even though I have a trumpet player, I don't think I could get him to do this exactly. So I'm just going to leave the keyboard. That came about because I was out taking a hike or a walk or something. And I was singing the melody to the verse and imagining it with brass. And i going, that's weird meaning I never thought of this melody as lending itself so easily. It, it seemed like it was like, wow, that's such a brass marching band melody. I grew up playing trombone in marching band in school. The only way they'd let you play in jazz band was if they forced everybody to march because they knew everybody wanted to jam and rock out in jazz band, but we needed marching people for marching competitions and football games and all that stuff. So they would force a variety of us to join marching band. So I ended up on trombone. I have an affinity, some experience with writing, reading, and and understanding how brass manifests. And I thought it would be fun to explore that. Well, the more I explored it, it just kept turning into this football team sports march kind of thing. Then I just kept taking it further and further and further into that detour, which is why you've got the sportscaster guy. Initially, it was just going to be an instrumental. You know, stop the singing. We'll just do a little instrumental departure that is over the changes of the verse. We've all grown up and played in plenty of bands where bridge is over, going back to the verse, guitar takes a solo. God, we've been there, done that so much. What could I possibly do 40 years after the invention of rock and roll to just fuck it up a little bit more? I, I at least need to try. So I'm just, I just keep trying. And that's where we got into that.
1: What I'm interpreting as I go through here, since you've now said this is about reincarnation, that I was taking it a little more literally, like, is this about the Heaven's Gate cult? Is this about, you know, you're talking about sort of being screwed over by whatever the man, the, but it's the universe. So this whole actually making that a commentary on coming back for another life, uh, you know, if at first you don't succeed. I don't think there's ever been a uh, marching band song about Buddhism. I don't think John Philip Sousa was into that. Well, that's where I come in.
2: <laughs> I can take all these worlds that supposedly have, on the surface, nothing to do with each other, and smush them all into a blender.
1: And let's play the very end of the song, because it, it just seems to end on a, why this chord? But let's see here. They we're entering... A- hmm, it's a, it's a th- pensive chord. <laughs> As opposed to just dribbling off into the spaceship has taken off. That's kind of what I would expect is just to end it a half a second earlier <laughs> before that last. What was your thought? Was that an impulse of the moment or was that planned by the music
2: theory of the piece? There was an impulsivity to it, playing with predictability, being trained a lot and being a fan of jazz. The jazz tradition was essentially, the bulk of it in this last century was you take, the standards of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then, of course, in the city, right, you got this like 30 year window of jazz standards, which often were songs used in musicals or from movies, right? there were the popular songs of the time.
1: Someday my prince will come. Yes.
2: Exactly. So that's a perfect example. So you take that. Well, depending on the combination of jazz musicians you have, you play with the architecture and then you Freaking take it as far into the stratosphere as you want. That's what each jazz musician is going to be an interpreter that way. And over the decades, these brilliant, brilliant minds have concocted endless ways to play with musical theory and harmony to screw with that basic architecture. And then we become fans or less fans of how they do that, right? So I've got my favorite players and rearrangers and composers that have all these little tricks, right? So I I learned things along the way. And one of the things, and it's not just a jazz tradition, but it certainly is employed a lot, is the standard's always going to end on the dun, 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 one, just like symphonies. Sure. But a lot of jazz musicians started going, screw that, I'm tired of that. What are different ways of ending the song, particularly on that final chord? There have been rock bands and artists that have done this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I was simply playing with that. There is a strategy to it, but at the end of the day, it's either gratifying or it's not. And to me, it was very gratifying. A perfect band that really exemplifies modernizing what the jazz tradition did, it was a band like Steely Dan. So I hold them in such reverence and such esteem because while their music is infinitely complex, particularly as they evolve later in their career, they always value a quality, simple, feel-good groove, lyrical melodies that you can sing along to mostly that are hooky and catchy. But all the arrangement intricacies in between are endlessly fascinating to me, particularly because most of Sealy Dan's fans, I'd say 95% of them, aren't musicians. So all this incredible mind complexity is flying through, and the listener's just tapping their steering wheel going, oh, yeah woo, I'm singing along. This feels good. That Therein lies the art. It's nuance. It's subtlety. Sometimes a band like Queen, you can clobber the listener over the head with some of these things. It's always a dance understanding when you want to go extreme and not be subtle for a purpose, and when you want to be subtle also for a purpose, and any degree in between. And I'm glad to hear that on you know, on this song, for example, you're having a response and all that tells me, you may be having a positive response one minute, a negative response the next. All that tells me though, is I did my job in evoking something from you as a listener. I'm pushing your nerve center. I'm pushing your nervous system as opposed to you having a passive listening experience.
1: So I'm going to take this as a segue to the third song. I wanted to pick something that where you had some self-imposed limits. So you had an album that you put out under the name Malibu called Robo Sapiens. Pick the song time to time. There's only a couple. Most of the things on that are just grooves. This one is one of just two or three that have fully fleshed out lyric that is, you know, a song per se, but no guitars, no actual drums, This is just whatever. Tell me before we hear it in full here, is this all analog? What were the limits you put on yourself in putting
2: this Malibu album together? In the late 90s, early 2000s, I actually really enjoyed doing remixes for other artists. I had a partner named Tony Hoffer, and he and I did a bunch of remixes together as a team, And then I continued to do remixes on my own in the 2000s. And the joy of those was that with each remix, I was invited to get out of my own head, my own world. I basically had an assignment. And often that assignment was, take our song, whatever it is, give it some kind of groove, dancey element to it. But we don't just want a house mix. I was very fortunate that I created a calling card or an environment for the artist who was requesting a remix that they wanted me to take some chances, be adventurous, but still kind of keep people in the club. I learned a lot on those projects and that's what the Malibu project was born out of. So those imposed limitations were to essentially mess with electronics and samples. It was primarily instrumental. If it was going to have singing, it was going to be through electronics, like vocorders and extensive vocal processing and stuff, creating an alter ego, continuing in a tradition of a lot of my electronic heroes like Kraftwerk and Herbie Hancock, where, in my opinion, that to this day, that's some of the funkiest, hard funk, hard groove music uh, that's ever been created, and it was done primarily with electronics craftwork being the perfect example and of course they're approaching it from a very calculated regimented western anglo-european non-urban non-african and yet they then cross influence and inspire early hip hop and early electro music the cross-pollination and sharing of ideas is again one of the most inspiring moments in popular and instrumental music for me but i was just trying to add my two cents to those worlds.
1: So there's something about the mood of this. It's so new order. Something about this minor key 80s thing that it really takes me back to being 12 years old. And some of this, it's a little dangerous because it's kind of minor key, but it's still not really. It's you know, it's not punk. Yeah. We haven't really talked about the lyrics of either song much. You get pleasure first, but you finish last. One mistake you pay for life or you're, something like that. Can you say a little about where, again, was this the lyrics were the very last thing and barely even matter, or did this shape the tone of what you're doing here?
2: More or less the latter. Okay. Not that the lyrics don't matter, but yeah, they are more incidental. My God, the bass is probably the most important part of this song. But no, it's probably, if I'm remembering correctly, because this lyric was a while ago, I'm probably playing with, you know, this whole kind of consciousness of pleasure seeker without consequences. There's a, the, deeply intense power of the sexual urge to the point where often people are not able to temper their sexual urges and energies and desires with reason. And they can often get themselves and others into trouble and hurt in the process. And everybody knows what that feels like to some degree or another, because it's the temptation of the flesh, which is one of the immense joys of being in a body. And yet it still requires consciousness. It's like anything else. If you, if you don't enter into it with some level of consciousness, you fly too close to the sun kind of thing in the name of hedonistic abandonment. There's going to be consequences.
1: Yeah. One of the eighties touchstones for this one night in Bangkok that very much the the similar theme. I guess there are two musical elements that sort of work against that. This I wrote a dork riff (laughs) because I can't put in words like what Instrument you're trying for here, this uh, this little (laughs) that hardly sounds like, ooh, baby. But I guess it is kind of in the you know roughly in the disco world. If you just put a little portamento or something, then it could be in the. uh, I'm trying to think what keyboardist do this.
2: Yeah, I remember my attitude headspace for this song was that beautiful time in the early '80s when Prince and Depeche Mode again, they're basically writing the dark corners of the alley and nightclub of this uh, hedonistic funk. There's a sinister. Am I doing this because I'm attracted to that man or woman? No, I'm actually doing it to piss off my father. The, all the psychology that comes into play, trying to convey that. Again, I, I love the fact that an Anglo Brit band like the Pesh mode could convey that sentiment as effectively as an American urban guy like Prince could, that they're both speaking that language so effectively and conveying that message. I know all these people's records were inspiring each other at the time. It's like, God, what an incredible time in music. Because because it's it's almost like the funk of the 70s, you know, the Sly Stones, Stevie Wonders, Rufus, Earth, Wind & Fire. I mean, there's so many early Commodores, blah, blah, blah. There's so many good bands that were groove masters. These traditions are brought forth into the 80s and they really start getting mangled. And they really start getting experimental. And I love that. I love what keeps happening when American music gets inspirational to people across the pond. They screw it up and do something else with that tradition. Then a bunch of Americans get inspired by it again, and it just keeps going back and forth. That was happening a lot in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't know if it's happening much anymore. I'd have to reassess. But that's the period I grew up in. And it was really fascinating and influential to me.
1: Was this realm of influences sort of off limits as of, you know, this is not that many years after Jellyfish, but like certainly XTC doesn't do that kind of stuff. Talking Heads does. Talking Heads takes basically the same ingredients that XTC has, but then is able to add, you know, exactly that kind of 70s goofy synth and works somehow.
2: By their own admission, you know, and my God, they had Bernie Worrell in their band. Talking Heads were highly influenced by James Brown and James Brown aftermath in the form of Parliament Funkadelic and stuff. So you've got this incredible thing of these educated, affluent art school students who recognize they don't have any of the jazz and funk training of the James Brown lineage, but they are as deeply infatuated by it as any musician. So what does that mean for us? Well, thankfully. They had Brian Eno, who I think helped them discover what does that mean for us and how do those key elements end up in our music. The results, the fear of music, remain in light, speaking in tongues, triumvirate of records is some of the greatest American funk pop of the century, in my opinion. It's such an incredible
1: gift. Am I right, though, that this was fairly new to adding this to your creative palette? There's no Jellyfish song coming to mind, for instance, or Imperial Drag that has this in it.
2: Yes and no. I mean, like lots of musicians, there's lots of music that stimulates me and excites me and inspires me. Jellyfish was a focus. Jellyfish was like, well, although I like all these other things, I really want to concentrate here with this group of people, my collaborators. We could have been all things to all people. Uh, Certainly, we were. in fact, we were too eclectic for some people. Some people wanted it much more one-dimensional in a box. This is power pop, as I deem power pop uh, having come before you. So it needs to sound roughly just like Big Star combined with a little bit of the and or something cheap trick or whatever. Well, obviously we did more than that and wanted to explore more than that. But I grew up playing drums first. That was my first instrument. So groove construction, rhythm construction is as important to me as a beautiful Carpenter, you know, Karen Carpenter lyrical melody that Burt Bacharach wrote. I mean, I get off on all that. In high school, I was very immersed in California hardcore punk rock scene and played drums in punk bands and stuff. But I didn't love it so much that I wanted to then start a punk band. But the punk energy, the punk aesthetic has never left me. It's always been there in some aspect. It's, it's one of the reasons I can thrive and collaborate so easily in the Beck band. There's a punk rock thread that's been in everything Beck has ever done. And again, it's a language that you either know and speak like jazz or you don't. So I have tried to create these environments, whether it was the band TVI's, the Malibu Project, Licorice Quartet, My Solo Stuff, Jellyfish and Trill Drag. That stuff could have never been the same band. It helps to compartmentalize it and play in this environment and seduce. That gets into the understanding of music as a commodity and music as a business and music as a commerce.
1: People talk about artists selling out, like among all the things I like, let's just focus to making this an identifiable, a commodifiable product. And hopefully you can do that without chopping off too many of the edges that make it interesting. So as somebody who likes to construct rhythms, I think doing this electronically adds this extra freedom because you don't need to just have one snare drum, right? That even in here, you've got snare, you know, whatever this snare with an overlaid, another snare probably, or we have the same variations between verses, between sections that are otherwise, you know, that are melodically the same that we've had in the other songs we've talked about. It's just that, okay, now we're going to add a second hi hat. That's, you know, filling in the gaps here or something like that, that, do you still think, since you started as a drummer, I would think that you're still sort of at least starting to layer it like kind of thinking of a kit rather than just a parade of rhythmic sounds.
2: Yeah, so the other thing that happened to me growing up in the 80s, in my teen and college years, were that drum machines were just coming into being. They were starting to take over the majority of rhythmic tracks, and the possibilities were endless. So as a young keyboard player getting into sampling and Constructing backing tracks, all the great albums by Peter Gabriel and Tears for Fears and Thomas Dolby, even the whole LA sound and scene with the David Foster and Jay Graydon productions and, you know, which is basically post yacht rock type stuff. It all comes into play because I don't care how I get to the finish line. There's no rules and regulation. Like anybody, I have things that I feel are cool and hip and really get to the core of a vibe better and quicker and in a more tasteful way than something else but taste is subjective right so i mean i can remember all the early madonna records were so much fun to listen to because she hired a bunch of these kind of like new york dance funk programmer guys and all those records are done with a handful of drum machine sounds and a handful of synthesizers all the bass and maybe a little guitar overdub it's mostly all keyboard driven i mean it was keyboard the early 80s into the mid 80s are keyboard paradise. And that's when I was a highly impressionable young man. And I just happened to like, what's that early Madonna song? Uh, get into the groove. It's a goddamn groove masterpiece. Not only is it a great song with a great melody that you can't get out of your head, but the groove construction with the architects that she hired to do that is it's just impeccable.
1: Let me play one more element of this. I wrote modal synth solo. You get a solo instrument that leaves the harmonic or the... Uh... Is it just that because you're not playing a chord, it's based on the bass, so it has to keep the same root, but it seems like to have it harmonically open enough that you could pick that note, of which I didn't like. sit down and like, what is that, the flatted seventh? I didn't figure out what that was, but it definitely seems like there's a new chord popping up in this thing that should not allow that.
2: So what's happening architecturally is that you're right. I'm leaving it open-ended. The bass line is implying a harmony, but the melody's coming in and kind of flying in the face of that harmony, adding up to a third harmony. Now, I could sit there at the keyboard and show you technically what chords are actually happening, but that's irrelevant. The point is is you're being affected. A lot of my heroes in the synth pop era, again, were untrained musicians. They were conceptual artists. They were all from art school for the most part. But they discovered by pushing a few buttons and creating a sound on the drum machine or a synthesizer, and then doing the two-finger, you know, they don't have keyboard technique, they're just plucking out stuff. When did they know they had it right? When it sounded good to them. You've got a completely untrained band like the Human League, for example, who's not when they first started, but as their career evolved, they wanted to write more catchy and catchy dance-based pop. They started out more conceptual art and angularity. They weren't concerned with being on the radio, let's say. They were concerned with creating a different mood environment. But the whole point is they basically didn't know what they were doing from a theoretical standpoint great because they were simply being driven by does this feel good is this affecting me and my bandmates in a positive way there's also this punk aesthetic of tearing down the the traditions that came before them so that melody i almost guarantee was me just pulling up a synth sound i knew i wanted some synth melody to take over so it had to be melodic and me just like plucking around until i got something i sound good i didn't theorize it first It's just like i just want to create a little hook
1: it's interesting because it, I mean, it's related to the chorus, the time to time we feel like it could harmonize over that. Like if you were doing yeah. a big Manhattan transfer stack, <laughs> this is one of the ones that would be up there. And like, okay, let's just, so it, it doesn't sound out of nowhere. Um, let's actually hear the end of the song where that recurs, the rhythm drops out, and then I wrote interesting end. Yeah, there's another where like, now that it's stopped, the backing drone is coming in, and there's a totally different chord. There's a totally different thing. I'm not sure if it was going on before, and it just is rising to the surface, or you had it, like the last
2: song, sort of morph into something else. Again, I can't speak for other arrangers, but having jazz tradition, I've had traditional schooling. You understand that, yes, there are 12 pitches in a scale that you can screw around with, but... Man, the possibilities are so endless. And I often enjoy superimposition of harmony unless it becomes so weirded out that it becomes alienating for a listener. I mean, I try to keep in mind that my brothers or my girlfriend who don't have musical training and whose ears aren't as sophisticated, they're going to be hearing this too. And what might their response be? Ultimately, I try to please myself. If I'm excited about something, my hope is that the audience will be excited about it. Or if my bandmates are excited about something, etc. So I understand that you can actually take something that's very generic, basic in its harmonic structure, like a one-four-five blues progression, but you can superimpose other harmony within it to expand it and make it something else temporarily. Sometimes those things happen naturally because I might hear them in my head or I'll stumble onto them accidentally. And again, I guarantee you a lot of these untrained heroes I'm talking about, they stumbled onto these things accidentally by just dicking around with the synthesizer. I don't know what I'm doing, but we're rolling tape and they lock into something that's fascinating to them. They don't have to know technically what's happening at all they're just all looking at around each other in the room and going that happy accident sounds amazing
1: i guess the difference in it's since it's a different texture that's coming in whereas in the turnstile heaven's gate it was you know we're resolving to an unexpected chord this time it doesn't sound like it's you know it's not that synth sound that's been doing the melody that resolves to an unexpected chord it just goes away and other stuff comes in, like it's, it's almost the effect of like on I am the walrus or something where you, you bring in like a radio station, you know, you just bring in a foreign sound to just add some psychedelic atmosphere. Although it, you know, this is not a psychedelic song. So different cultural connotation, just having this nice warm seething backing noise. Yeah. So the last thing we're going to do here is just have you introduce operator from glamping 2018, your last solo thing we've got four songs on this EP from Licorice Quartet. I saw some other interview where you said you'd written 12 or so with them. Are are the rest coming out in some way?
2: Yes, they are. We're working on the other eight songs now, and they will probably just out of convenience because we're primarily a studio band and not on a traditional label, and the record business isn't what we remember it as far as marketing growing up. So EPs seem to be a nice chunk of entertainment for an audience um this way it doesn't have to be music from us every five years (laughs) you can get it out a little quicker and keep that audience evolving uh with you and being this great sounding board for your evolution as a band
1: well i think that so glamping was an ep as well and operator that folks are about to hear uh, the last thing is a much more, I want to say minimalist, but it's not minimalist. It's just by comparison to the the two songs that we started off with today is just a much more controlled super tramp kind of keyboard, nice melody thing. Do you want to say a little about it as a way of saying goodbye here?
2: That was a song that I actually wrote with another gentleman who had hired me to help write songs for a solo album he was going to do. That solo album never materialized, so we had these chunks of ideas sitting around. And I loved this chunk of idea that we had come up with together. His name name is Evan Weisblatt. lives in Toronto. And I asked him if he'd mind me realizing the song for a solo effort, which meant I was going to write lyrics to it. I was going to basically take our sketch and build it from the ground up. And I had no master game plan. I just believed in the verse and the chorus a lot. And I think we had had the bridge as well. Anyway, I just went to town having a Arrangement fun with it. My friend Blue Macaulay sings all the background vocals with me. I arranged them all, and we have very different voices. His is more of a traditional male tenor. I'm more of a traditional baritone, and then we just went to town and whose ever voice sounded best here. We just sing it all together. Blah blah blah. And it definitely has an attitude to it. I really wanted to bring in some fun, bouncy synthesizers in a pop setting, the way a lot of my uh, heroes did in the late '70s, with you know, synthesizers were really becoming more complex and capable of a lot more. I had fun with that. Oh, and Taylor Locke, he plays guitar on the track and gets some really neat stuff happening in there too. Well, I should say Blue plays the guitar solo, which is one of my favorite guitar solos of all time. It's super short, super impactful, and just so in the spirit of that era of pop.
1: Well, thanks so much for doing this, Roger. Yeah,
2: uh, Thank you, Mark, for conducting one of the most fresh interviews i've done in a long time you have done your homework you've asked very insightful in-depth questions which is always a pleasure and fun to answer
1: here's operator from glamping Thank you so much to Roger. I think he's really a great guest for this kind of podcast. Really likes to get into the details and talk about influences and ideology and all that stuff. If you are sad that we didn't actually cover any jellyfish, I want to refer you to some videos that he did for the YouTube channel Produce Like a Pro, where they play little chunks off both of the jellyfish albums. and really discuss those in painstaking detail. I really enjoyed those. And I gotta say that after a couple listens, this Licorice Quartet release, specifically the song we talked about, Lighthouse Spaceship, man, that was in my brain for weeks after recording this episode. I definitely recommend you check that out at thelicoricequartet.com and it's not spelled the way you think. Just look at the notes accompanying this episode. If you are not subscribed directly to this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or on the Nakedly Examined Music Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google or Amazon feeds, please do that. And I could always use your support and you can avoid hearing me have to read any more ad copy if you go sign up at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. My next episode is with Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad That was a very big get And speaking of big gets I also spoke This week to Chris France A drummer from The Talking Heads Who has released An autobiography I got to talk to him About Talking Heads And Tom, Tom Club songs So definitely subscribe To the podcast So you will get that Delivered to you eventually I hope as usual You are staying safe Finding some way To be creative Keep on musicin' Until next time This is Mark Meyer Signing off